Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Right now, at CBUS, we're building a new future for all of us. By building new projects in property, investing in infrastructure, and putting millions into Australian businesses, we're not only helping to create around 100,000 jobs, we're strengthening the economy. And with a history of strong, long-term performance, we're building a better, more secure future for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Cohens and Jeff Lemon. It's a couple of days before the Australia-India Test Series. That's where Jeff's flying shortly. I'm joining him in a couple of days. It's an exciting time of the year, Jeff. It's it's the, the the longest wait for the start of a test series I think ever. You know, I've been watching cricket and and working at cricket intensely since the end of September. So it's been it's been three months of of cricketing preparation, and we're about to launch into a, a test series, which which feels like a great relief, I suppose, to be in a country where that can happen and where people can go and watch it and where we can travel around and cross the various state borders and, and do that as well. Yes, it'll be, I suppose, the fifth and final podcast that we've done while I've been in hotel quarantine, although we couldn't rule it out. I think my latest instructions is that we'll stay for a 15th night, which is just bonkers, but we will talk about that another time. More excitingly, though, you've uh, you've received an email from one of our recent guests and most loved guests on The Final Word, uh, William McInnes. 
Yeah, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our William McInnes interview, it comes highly, highly recommended. During that interview, we, we discussed a couple of things, one of which was, was why um, he addressed me in correspondence as hello, old cock, and another of which was him running into Froggy Thompson, a former Australian bowler, at a, a drinks session at the MCG. And so, you know, a good six months later or whatever it is, I get an email out of the blue that begins, hello, old cock, and contains a photo of William McInnes with Froggy Thompson that he dug up and said he immediately thought of us and wanted us to have it. Um, so they're, they're both looking a little dishevelled in this particular photograph from uh, some sort of a, a drink session at the MCG that William described as being um, as long as a good night's sleep. <laughs> so that, <laughs> very glad to hear from, from Final Word alumni out, out in the universe and, and thank you for dropping us a line. We'll have another... Uh, member of the cricketing fraternity join our final word alumni today and that's Darwood Malant who I had a long conversation with yesterday we'll have that on the back of the show Darwood is staying in the same hotel as me in hotel quarantine so we thought what better time than mm-hmm. to have a conversation about his really interesting career I, I knew a bit of the story but perhaps I didn't quite appreciate just uh, well just how interesting it is really uh, having grown up in in South Africa over to England the first class treadmill that he was on for such a long time getting his opportunities with England and now as, as we talked about on the show probably two weeks ago the the number one rated T20 international player of all time alongside you know Bradman and Viv as we sort of joked then but uh yeah, he was in Great Nick. So stick around for a chat with David Milan later on. We've also got Daniel Norcross back with his dystopian World War II history, which includes now a fairly healthy dose or unhealthy dose, if you like, of coronavirus through it. So lots to get through, Jeff. And we'll start, of course, with the series that's coming up in a couple of days. What I'm most interested in with the David Milan story is that... Uh I noticed that a new film version of Roald Dahl's The Witches is coming out shortly. And what I remember most from The Witches is the sequence in which uh, they're, they're staying in the same hotel as The Witches and they have to get the uh, the kid who's a mouse has to get into the room of the witch and they do so via the means of the grandmother's knitting. She's knitting a sock and so she dangles a sock down from the balcony and swings it in onto the balcony below which belongs to the witch and I'm just imagining you doing this with David Milan <laughs> with a microphone on a lead, just just dangling it down the side of the hotel so that he can grab it on his balcony and, and you can record this interview. If you didn't do it that way I don't want to know. That's fine. Just, we'll, just, just let me believe what I want to believe. Yeah, give Given we're both in circumstances where if we open the door at the wrong time, we're subject to 14 further days of quarantine. We weren't going to take that kind of risk, but we did find a way to make it work. And yeah, it was worthwhile. I'm not sure when we would have got around to doing the Milan interview. I'm sure it would have been of interest at some stage on, on the show, uh, given how well he's been tracking recently. But I'm glad these circumstances brought us together. As the, the, the circumstance of the cricket schedule will bring us together in Adelaide ahead of this test match, which begins on Thursday. Now, before we go much further, I I should say that there'll be another podcast in the feed tomorrow, a short and sharp daily effort from us. And that will be the first of the Border Gavaska Daily. So we're going to be doing just as it was last year with the World Cup and with the Ashes. We'll be recording about 15 to 20 minutes stumps uh, from the ground. It'll be a lot of fun. For those of you who were part of the action last year, you'll know what it's all about. If you're newer to the show, these can get quite raucous and you know uh, quite energetic. So we'll set up the series in more depth tomorrow after listening to the captain's press conferences. But that will be where we'll probably do more of the heavy lifting on the on the preview side of things. But Jeff, we've had Justin Langer talking today and that's very relevant 
relevant to the broader conversation. Yeah, the the conversation has all been about what happens at the top of the order. I was at the the tour match over the weekend where Joe Burns had another shocker after having a shocker in the previous tour match and having a very ordinary Shield season before that. So it, it looks like every chance that he'll be left out, basically as long as Cameron Green's fit. Cameron Green got hit when he was bowling. He had the ball struck back at him by Jasper Boomer and got hit in the head, which was a pretty horrible sight to see. Luckily, it wasn't a, a completely nailed shot. It was a bit of a skewed shot, and it wasn't as powerful as it might have been. So he was subbed out as a concussion sub, but I think he came up pretty well. I think it was more a precautionary substitution than anything else. So as long as he's fit to play, he'll play, and he'll bat six, which means that... Matthew Wade will, by definition, will have to move up the order and that'll be how it'll happen. It won't be Manus opening, it'll it'll be Wade opening if that's the case. And if not, I guess they have to go with Burns and Harris because they're in the squad. But the way that, that Joe Burns has been going lately and, and watching him over the weekend, he doesn't look like a player who's got the confidence that he can actually make runs at some point. Yeah, it's amazing how this has changed in the last four weeks when we uh, were having a conversation about the Australian squad after the Sheffield Shield round concluded, it was like, wow, like they're in great nick. This is an Australian team which couldn't be more settled. The good debates were being had around, can Pekofsky find a way in? Who does David Warner open up with? You know, Cam Green in the squad, great that he'll be there to get some experience, but probably won't debut because Wade's the incumbent number six. And, and all the rest of it, maybe Green gets a shot at Melbourne or Sydney. You know, positive conversations. But since then, I reckon we're now at a stage where I don't really remember a time before a first test match where there were more combinations possible inside the top six with 48 hours to go or whatever it works out to be at time of recording so as you point out there Lang is very firm about green batting six if fit so if that's the case then Wade as you say must go up to open who does he open with I'd be interested for your perspective on on Burns and, and Harris I mean Burns we all feel desperately sorry for having made is it 62 runs in seven innings this year or something like that and looks desperately out of form and you just feel for the guy given he hasn't had a chance to lose his spot in the test arena it's all been through first class cricket mm. much as it was for Matt Renshaw before the ashes of 17-18 but is Marcus Harris going much better I mean sure he made that big hundred for Victoria in his first shield game of the season but I mean it's not as though he's being Burns this is is being shoved out by someone who's insisting on playing as it would have been with Pekofsky this is a it's not as clear cut for mine if 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 Wade does end up opening the left hand right hand thing might be tempting and Burns having you know got that broader body of work having made test centuries in the past sure he's going like a busted and it's hard to see how they'll pick him on that basis but it's not as straightforward as simply we're dropping him because he's out of form yeah it's and it's it's not as simple as as harris demanding that spot look he did make a shitload of runs he in the shield he made that double hundred but he made a few 50s and so on as well and, and had a good season thus far and he's done that before but the question with harris is always does he actually have the ability to step up when when the bowling's at a different level and he made some 20s and 30s in the tour games but did what he so often does which is just invent a way to get out um, when he's already got himself in and and that's often been the worry with with mm. him as well that's how it was when India toured last time where he made a couple of 50s but never went on to a big score so uh, there's always that issue with Harris that he's whether he's up to that mark I don't think he's proven that he is yet but you would take that at the moment. You'd take someone who could make 30 or 40 at the moment ahead of Joe Burns. But both of them in the tour game, 
they were both moving across their stumps a huge amount. No, one's a right-hander, one's a left-hander. So Harris, the left-hander with the bowlers coming around the wicket at him, Stuart Broad style, he was hopping across a long way to try to cover that line and ended up flicking to leg slip because he'd come across so far. And the Indians set that trap. They knew they wanted to do that and it came off perfectly. And Burns was moving across a long way and got nailed LBW as you tend to do when you move across your stumps if you're not Steve Smith. Mm. So both of them were trying to come up with techniques to counter the Indian bowlers and both of them were defeated. So I can't say that I'd have great confidence about either of them going into a test series. Kind of amazing to think that Matthew Wade's test career was over two years ago, really. I mean, sure, on the way into that uh, summer of eighteen nineteen, when Australian test cricket was all over the place, no one was saying, well, Matthew Wade should be in the side. Sure, he goes on to make... Mm. Loads of runs in eighteen nineteen gets on the tour back into the team as a specialist bat uh, in the Ashes series at number six does well enough to keep himself there and thereabouts and 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 now as a three format player again but the idea of him now having another life as a Test opener albeit unexpectedly given the injury situation but yeah it's turning into quite the story for him. I don't like it if I can you know pull in pants down that for a minute. <laughs> I, I just I think Wade's gone so well the last couple of years that it's not the best use of him to make him a test opener he doesn't he hasn't done that job in first class cricket he doesn't necessarily I guess if you're a six you have to face the new ball but you're facing it after 80 overs not from the top and so in some ways it's not it's not providing him the best conditions to succeed and he's been so prolific um, in the middle order over the last couple of years in first class cricket that it, it seems to me that you're wasting an asset by using him at the top of the order where it's less likely to work and you're wasting potentially a, a player who could have a really key influence. I would have thought your first drop is better qualified to go up and be an opener because that's a job that they have to do when there's a wicket in the first over. So I think Australia, they've wasted some opportunities with Wade. They haven't used him in 50 over cricket when he's been so good in that format the last couple of years. They haven't used him enough in T20 cricket. He had to become captain to put himself up to open to ensure that he got another shot at that opening spot. So he could have given the Australian team a lot more, I reckon, in the last couple of years if they'd been willing to back him in harder. Yeah, Langer's observation on that was that they don't... Having lost Warner, they don't want to mess too much with Labashane and Smith, who I suppose they consider the three of them their engine room. And... Thus, it becomes a needs-must situation, and and if they're picking between Head and Wade, they think Wade's more equipped having, I suppose, been the number three for Tassie uh, at Bell Reeve means that he's been facing a pretty new ball quite a lot of the time. But yeah, it's obviously a a situation where he's being shoehorned in. It's not ideal, but I don't know. I just got a feeling that um, with Wade, given all that he's gone through and over a number of years in and out of Mm. the test team, he's always been a batsman first to keep a second when he was in the team the first time around and indeed the second time around when his glove work was nowhere near as good as those that came either side of him. Whether, I don't know, I, just, I wouldn't be surprised if it went well. Uh, and if that were the case, then Australia... He, could, he might succeed. He, he's, the kind of, he's the kind of guy who, who, could, who could make it work. I, yeah, you know, yeah. I just wonder whether it's the best use of him, that's all. Yeah, uh, in terms of the Australia A game, which you were at, and as I said before, we'll talk probably more about Australia-India and and the clash ahead on the Daily Show tomorrow, but the Australia A game was uh, largely an unsuccessful pursuit for the Australian A team. If you look at it as far as getting rock and roll for 100-odd on on day one and being clouted by um, Richard Pump uh, on the evening, uh, on the second night, wasn't it, with the pink ball and Alan Border cutting sick, which generated a lot of headlines. But they did bowl out India for not many, and they did make a big score on... 
on, on the final afternoon themselves. So it wasn't a complete misadventure. No, it wasn't, but it, it was more about what they wanted to get out of that game and what they wanted was um, Burns and Harris to make runs to set themselves up for the Test Series and they wanted their sort of second tier of bowlers in Abbott and, and Harry Conway and so on to get some get a go with the pink ball in the evening and they wanted Mitch Swepson to take a bag of wickets to to kind of shore up his spot as as the next spinner behind Nathan Lyon. So they had an option ready to go if they need one. They didn't get any of that. Um, Swepson bowled two overs in the first innings because they rolled India for 108. And then he, what was he, won for 148 in the second innings, got absolutely pounded. Everybody got injured. Green got subbed out. Harry Conway got subbed out after being hit while batting. And then Abbott had a calf problem in the second innings. So they were down. They had no bowlers left. The 100 that Richard Pant made was, was quite comical in the end because the first 50 was pretty much exclusively made off the bowling of Nick Maddinson, bowling his left arm nothings, trying to get to the second new ball. And then the second new ball was taken by uh, Will Sutherland and Jack Wildermuth, who were a couple of medium pace all-rounders for their state sides. So as far as as far as far facing a fierce new ball test, it wasn't that. Um, yeah, so he, he smacked 22, I think, off the last over and, and got to his 100, which was quite comical in itself. I think he was on 71 with eight minutes to go that night. <laughs> and I was in the commentary box. I said... I said ton, ton for Rishabh Pant and, and got got roundly laughed out of town. It's not going to happen. And what do you know? They brought it up, up off the last ball of the night. That second you bought, so Will Sutherland, who was in a moon boot about two weeks ago, wasn't he? So you got him doing it. So, I mean, and, hmm. and, and Jack Wildermuth, who, sure, wasn't successful with the ball the second time around, but three wickets in the first innings, a century, an unbeaten century, a hmm. quick unbeaten century uh, in the second innings. Uh, Jack Wildermuth's a player I've had my eye on pretty closely the last two years. I was fortunate enough to be there with him and spend some time with him on his international debut in Harare in July 2018. So that was the, the T20 tri-series that Pakistan were down for as well. And in the case of Wildermuth, they, they chucked him in for the final group game against Zimbabwe to, to blood him. And it was the coldest day I've ever experienced in cricket, without a doubt. I think it was one once when they accounted for the wind chill. It was one degree outside when play started at nine a.m. And in the first over of the game, down at third man, I think Billy Stanlake was bowling. A big top edge came down to Wildermuth, and it must have broke his fingers. It was a shocker. It didn't quite land with him. It, it you know nervously fell to the floor. But I remember he backed up so well, took a, a brilliant diving catch at fine leg. Two overs later, picked up a wicket. You know, looked okay in the middle when he did get the chance to bat. And generally speaking, just kind of really enjoyed his international debut. And I remember him saying that Mark Wall's mm. words to him when he gave him the cap were simply, have fun, mate, which is basically, you know, as much as you're going to get out of Mark Wall uh, as, as far as um, uh, profound <laughs> commentary uh, when, when receiving a cap. But uh, I think he, he interpreted it as sort of like, this may not happen again. Like, it's your first cap and it might also be, you know, kind of your mm. last. And he played short two games in that series. But since then, he's been off the radar. So to see him come back and to shape the ball so beautifully away from the right-hander on the first day and to bat with such confidence at the end. Look, he, he isn't really on the radar for international selection right now, but that wouldn't have hurt. And to have, like, I suppose the the international media watching him, it's all televised and so on. If it turns out that Australia do need an all-round option in a couple of years' time, that won't hurt at all. He, he made an impression and his, his bowling on that first day, the swing, as you said, used the pink ball really well, also got the in-swinger um, to go a couple of times picked up those three wickets and looked dangerous. And then when he was batting, you know, what stood out was an over where he, when Muhammad Shami was bowling, who was the pick of the bowlers throughout, and, and Wildermuth went back on his stumps twice and clouded him over deep mid-wicket for six, you know, why not? 
then then he switched modes and, and was quite quiet in in supporting Ben McDermott to get to a hundred, and then you know um, switched up the gears and and got to a hundred himself uh, before the before the close. So yeah, it, it was a it was a match in which watching Wildermuth was probably the best thing to come out of it for Australia A um, and aside from that India got pretty much everything they wanted lots of preparation runs for just about everyone who needed it um, a couple of sessions bowling under lights and and a decent session batting under lights for Rahane and, and Vahari who'll be in the test team so they'll be pretty happy with it Australia A less so but it, it might not make a huge difference overall Interesting the approach that India took when batting in both innings at the top of the order they just went for it and I suppose it's less about perhaps this series we're about to watch and more about the Indian team we're, we're going to see over the next generation with the, I mean test players mm. who've been fine-tuned in the IPL who back themselves against the new ball thinking of Sandrew Sampson pretty sure I mean this is a going to be a very exciting uh, era of Indian cricket when they get their chance to be senior players yeah, Prithvi Shaw and, and Shubman Gill particularly, he batted really nicely, made 65 or so in the second innings, a lot of drives through cover. And you look at his record, that was his 23rd first-class game and he's already made seven or eight first-class tons. Mm. He's made doubles against a bunch of the A-sides as well, so against South Africa A and New Zealand A and, and West Indies A and so on. He's made, made big runs against all of them, so Australia A sort of got away with one, getting him out for 60, mm. a couple of unbeaten double hundreds he's made in those sort of matches. So he's he's a player who might slot in for Coley when Coley goes mm-hmm. home, might slot in at number four. And him with Prithvi Shaw, you know, they're both exciting to watch. And, and then Mayank Agarwal's was playing the more senior responsible kind of slower hand, but they, they look pretty well set. And before we move off the, the tour game, uh, the Alan Border comments, I just thought it was just worth recapping on those. He was angry, clearly, about kind of everything, but it extended to, like... Should Pat Cummins be rested? Should players be in the IPL? Alex Carey's captaincy. It was a bit of a, you know, um, I suppose he turned it into a target-rich environment. He got the machine gun out and was just taking everyone down. What was the general sense of that uh, from those of you who were covering the game at close quarters? I guess it was curiosity more than anything because it seemed a pretty low-key environment in which to be to be lining up those targets but I suppose the point that AB was making was that this is still an Australian side if you're playing for an Australia A team you're still wearing a cap you're still representing the country in that way and and that perhaps there were longish periods when there wasn't any sting in the game but I think a lot of that was to do with the substitutions and injuries Mm, as well mm. you know what are you supposed to do when you've got a couple of under 19s cricketers from Victoria subbed onto the field and in one case subbed into the 11 because most of your bowling attacks gone I I don't really know where you're supposed to find that intensity Mm. when you're having to rely on part-timers to to go up against a very good side so uh, I, I could I could see why the response came about given the sort of lacklustre feeling on the field, um, but I'm not really sure how it could have been a lot. Yeah, I feel for someone like Mitch Swepson and all that as well. Like He's had such a fantastic two months as a state cricketer in the T20 side last week, and then there's Alan Border. I mean, again, all, all he, Alan Border can say what he wants. He's in that group of former Australian players who, who you have to listen to him when he talks, but I, I did feel a bit for Swepson uh, given that he's had this fantastic couple of months, but people probably at mm. the moment we'll, we'll be thinking that, well, Alan Border's written him off. That's, uh, that's not a good place for him to be. As yeah. And, he goes into the big bash and moves into the and, next and, phase of the season. 
And given that he was bowling with a wet ball late at night yeah. um, with all of his seamers out of the game, you know, trying to make up the overs to get them to the 80th for a new ball, it, it's not it's not exactly optimum spin bowling conditions. Jeff, we do have a C-Bus Super Performer of the Week out of all of that, and of course it must be Jack Wildermuth. Who else could it be as, as Moses wandered in the Wildermuth for 40 years? Uh, whether on site or at the crease, Adam Seabus goes into bat for their members. You can visit seabussuper.com.au today. You can find a PDS there, which will tell you what they do as a superannuation company. And you can remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. And I just want to say as well that Seabus Super are behind us for the Daily Show as well coming up. With amazing support they've given us. Uh, throughout the course of 2020 and 2019 as well. It's so great that they're, they're with us again for another summer. So cbussuper.com.au, get on there and take a look. Uh, Jeff, one other um, talking point through the week, which kind of relates to the Australia A game, but, but more generally now, I think, uh, owing to a couple of pieces of writing on the weekend, one especially from Malcolm Knox, is the, the bouncer debate. Now, this is probably a conversation that we could have over the space of a couple of hours, so I won't try and denigrate it by reducing it to sound bites, I suppose. But what Malcolm Knox is saying, or his critique, is that the bouncer will eventually be banned on the basis of what we now know about concussion that we didn't know before, that at some point it'll be ruled out of of the sport. And if that is the case, then kind of why are we waiting? Why are we waiting to move to a a decision that's going to be taken at some stage? What's the point in delaying when we know how problematic concussion can be? And I suppose the fact that Bukowski and Green and Conway have all been injured via concussion in the last week and a half has brought this um, into strong focus. And, of course, that's not the universal view either. Gideon Haig uh, gave a a response to Noxie on offsiders on the weekend as well, kind of going into the more technical side of short pitch bowling and and how it's um, been Mm. approached by batsmen now in the short form era compared to when test cricket prevailed and it was all about getting out of the way of the bouncer, whereas now batsmen tend to take it Mm. on because that's the... That's the starting point in in short-form cricket. So, yeah, again, I I don't want to sort of go into great depth on that, but it's interesting that these injuries have prompted a bit of deeper thinking on a topic that I think until now we have... It's awkward to think about. It's awkward to talk about. I think it's a subject that I don't even feel ready to talk about because I haven't thought about it enough because for a long time my immediate response uh, has always been that it's... It's dangerous, but it's part of the game, and it's the thing that introduces a, an aspect of jeopardy to the game, an aspect of risk uh, that that makes the contest a contest. Because if 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 you're at a if you're at a low level of cricket as a batter, then you are likely to get out no matter what kind of bowling gets sent down to you. You're, you're likely to make a mistake against. You can make a mistake against anything, but if you're a really high level of player you're you're not going to if you know that you're not going to get short stuff you know you can just come forward and and play off the front foot all day and and therefore you're not going to get out there won't there won't be a contest you're much less likely to make those mistakes um and and that's that's sort of automatically been my position for a long time but then you read malcolm knox's piece and he does compellingly make the argument that just because this is the way it's been and, and he says that you know he he loves the bouncer himself he loves watching spells of short pitch bowling as, as most of us do we find it we find it thrilling but he says is it is it worth our entertainment when we start to know 
the impact that these kind of injuries can have. And I think it's also important to note that in the previous no-helmet eras, there were still awful injuries from short balls. You know, maybe players were better at getting out of the way, but they still got hit. They didn't always get out of the way. You know, Richie Benno had a, a really bad injury early in his career being hit by a bouncer that he may not have recovered from um, that fractured his skull and left him with an indentation in his skull. You know, Jeff Lawson's jaw being broken, all the rest of it. And wearing a helmet might protect you from a fracture, but it doesn't protect you from concussions. So uh, I, I think it's something that that I would need to think about more to have a, a a position on it that would take into account all of the the complicated variables. Yeah, and, and Jack Goff on Patreon wanted us to talk about this and, and wanted us to reflect on on Noxie's piece. And yeah, I, I think I share that view. I'm you know, there's a a degree of titillation, isn't there, when watching short pitch bowling at its best? We only were last week lauding the the Archer Smith exchanges at Lords last year, not because Smith got felled, but because it was just exhilarating cricket. And we know that we'll be um, reflecting on that for for many many decades. And uh, I suppose one little anecdote from during the week, which stood out to me, I may or may not have put it on social media. It was when when Cam Green went down. I was watching it with Rach. And her and she's not a cricket person, right? Like, Rach, you know, obviously she goes to the cricket with us a little bit because of my work, but she's not brought up in the game, doesn't have that sort of traditional link to it. And she goes, why don't bowlers just wear the helmets they wear in rugby? I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I suppose, I mean, and I know that has been introduced a little bit with um, some bowlers have wore head protection, but it's like with bigger bats, uh, meaning the ball comes off far quicker, at a bowler in their follow-through. That seems like it should be a very obvious way to protect the bowler, just to have some protection around the temple uh, and around the, side, the back of the head as well. But um, like we just don't talk about it because, yeah, it is an awkward conversation. We all want to see short-pitch, exciting, fast bowling, but as, as Malcolm Knox points out, is it worth it now that we know a lot more than we knew before? And I, I suspect it's mm. these are questions that the game are going to have to consider, as painful as it is and as difficult as it is. And, and, and the secondary part of this is that how do you bring in that element of jeopardy that you're, you're discussing there, Jeff? How do you bring bat and ball closer together if you remove the short ball from the, the arsenal of the fast bowler? And it's in a context where other sports are being sued. They're being subject yeah. to class actions in, in rugby, in NFL, in American football, even in round ball football with all of the heading of the ball that goes on, mm-hmm. the, the, the thousands of minor sub-concussions rather than the big hits that knock you out. And it, you reach a position where you say, well, it's almost impossible to play rugby without the risk of concussion or without almost the inevitability of ongoing head injury to some degree. And and in cricket, you know, a a lot of players might come through a career without being hit in the head, but there'll be a proportion that will. So how do you try to approach it? But you also have the question of personal choice, where if your average... It's less of an issue in the women's game because there's less less really fast short pitch bowling. But in the men's game, as a batsman part of the challenge and part of the thrill is taking on short pitch bowling and surviving it some players want to do that so there's the question of personal choice do you do you have the right to assume that risk for yourself and and at what point does your right to assume a risk outweigh the right of the organizing body who's running the game their right to remove a risk to to anybody within the game who you know, even if they're purely looking at it from a legal responsibility point of view, so it's yeah, it's complicated. I think we'll come back to it yeah. when we've been able to think it through more. 
when it comes to the excitement of short pitch bowling, Perth, I suppose, historically has been the ground where it gets talked about the most. And Perth is the ground, the whacker indeed, uh, where there might be test cricket again in February. Daniel Bredig broke this story not long after we recorded the weekly show last week that it's possible that the South Africa... Australia test matches, three of them, uh, are in the diary for February and March. I think they're meant to start around about February 15, uh, that owing to what happened with the England bio bubble last week, that there, there might be a creative solution where they use the WACA. Now, they can't use the casino stadium because of the, the football schedule, that's fair enough, but the WACA is there. The time zone isn't too bad for South Africa compared to other parts of the world, especially if they play them as day-night fixtures, which means that the TV broadcasters would get the money they need out of it. My way of thinking is, what a clever, common-sense solution I mean, we always talk about how frustrated we get about scheduling. It feels to me as though, whether it's the WACA, CA, CSA who have initiated this conversation, it's a worthy one. And it might mean this series could be played in Perth in relatively free conditions compared to what might be required if they try and actually go to South Africa. Yeah, I, I got the impression that there were certain elements within Cricket South Africa who were not happy about this story and, and didn't like the idea, but there might be um, others who think that it's a way to, a way around what needs to be done. I mean, they basically, they desperately need that series to go ahead so they can get some income from it, yeah. um, but it's a matter of weighing up how much it's going to cost them, considering that the kind of um, broadcast rights amounts of money that CSA get coming in are much, much smaller than amounts that Cricket Australia would get coming in. So in order to be able to, you know, coming from a, a cost base in RAND and having to pay expenses in Australian dollars of having grounds set up and biosecurity protocols and all the rest of it would, would be a huge um, chunk out of what they would potentially make from it. But there, there, is that, there is that possibility, I suppose. And if you've got... A country that's got things relatively under control, then um, there's there's the ability to cross your fingers, but there's also the the possibility that uh, vaccination availability might make it more viable mm. for Australia to go to South Africa at that point, sort of February, March. What I know for sure is I won't be flying back from England to Perth to quarantine here for two more weeks before attending two test matches or, or three test matches. That might actually be a bridge too far, even for me. Jeff, the Big Bash <laughs> is back. We won't spend too much time on it this week. There's only been a handful of games so far. The Melbourne Stars have started well. They've won two, as have the Hobart Hurricanes. Uh, the Sixers flogged uh, the Renegades by 145 runs in a, in a record-breaking effort. The Thunder overcame the Heat. Canes beat the Strikers. So, I mean, Jeff, what's your uh, immediate impression of how this has worked? For mine, I'm, I'm, I think that they've actually stumbled upon quite a good little window. Uh, to my way of thinking, people are watching. Uh, it's not clashing with anything else. It's been in between the T20 internationals and the test matches and it's, it's on every night. And Isn't that kind of what we want? I, I don't know if it's just because I've been at the day-night tour game, but I, I haven't felt like the BBL has demanded much of my attention. It's been a bit odd having things like, you know, the, the Stars were playing a game... Uh, late in the evening in Canberra and then they were out there at, at 2pm the next day playing another one um, and, and there's that confusion about oh is there a game on now why is there a game on now that <laughs> that that erratic schedule where there are games on at 2pm and 6pm and 8pm and 11pm and just all over the place so they've got their little they had their little hubs going in Hobart and Canberra which um, which is something that might help with the sustainability of the the tournament going forward. But uh, I suppose it it hasn't um, 
it hasn't run away with my imagination, put it that way. Uh, Shaw Marsh in the runs, which uh, a lot of people tagged us in on Twitter. It's a shame that, that the Shaw Marsh fairy tale uh, didn't come to fruition in Adelaide this week, but there he is still still doing his thing. Uh, Glenn Maxwell started well, uh, was very important in the first game. I saw him wearing the yellow cap. I, I think they've already been handing out the, the yellow jersey, as it were, um, despite the fact that we're only a week into the tournament. So Maxi was fielding in the yellow cap in the second game, where he managed to drag in, uh, I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but classic Maxwell, he, he uh, he was, you know, a metre and a half over the line, dragging it in with one hand, flicking it back over the rope to save six runs, and it was barely even remarked upon on the commentary. And that's no reflection mm. on the callers, more just like even Maxi, who was mic'd up, said, oh, that's pretty standard now. And sure, yeah, it is, but the curve we grade uh, some of these cricketers on mm. to make that uh, standard practice, I, I was exchanging messages with Trent Woodhill about this on Twitter after it happened, and he said, you need to remember, Maxi is still the king when it comes to, to fielding. They're, they're still cha- He's on the throne. Anyone that thinks they've, uh, mm. they've got a claim on being the best has to knock off Maxi. So he's having fun, big smile on his face. He didn't use the power surge, or whatever it's called, uh, in the game where they were chasing 120-odd. This was really interesting. So he had two overs up his sleeve to bring the field in, but he's like, he decided that... He'd rather the field stay out because he didn't want to create. Uh, he didn't want to change the 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 atmospherics of the out. game. He didn't want to sort of change how it was mm. feeling. They were ticking their runs off systematically. He's like, no, no, that's cool. We'll just keep it as it is. We're happy to have the fielders out. We mm. don't want to create a situation where the fielders are in. It brings upon a run of wickets mm. or someone loses their head. And I thought again that sort of showed how savvy Maxwell is as a captain as well. Yeah, well, there's always the option with a fielding captain that they could bring the field in as a gamble to cut off the ability to go through the field mm. and then force players to go over the top and players might make a mistake or they might score boundaries and win. It's always an option the fielding captain has. Usually they go conservative and don't do it, but it is something that could bring them rewards. So I suppose if you're a batting side saying we're going to make them take that gamble, there is also the possibility that you could make them win that gamble rather than leaving yourself both options. In the first game of the tournament, the Sydney Sixers took a knee. Uh, and in the second uh, game of the comp, the Melbourne Stars did as well. And other teams as well, but there were, there were statements put out before play about those two clubs making that decision. Mm. With the exception of Ben Dunk, which... Um, I don't know what's going on there, but interesting that at a domestic level, these franchises have made the call, and this is in keeping with the conversation that we had uh, on the mm. show last week, to put themselves out there and, and do this and, 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 and make that call. Yet there are still players within some teams who won't. I wonder whether it'll prompt the conversation to be had again around the Australian national men's team. I suspect it won't, uh, but yes, it, w- it was certainly a, a point of attention on that first night when the Sixers put a statement out saying, no, no, we are going to take a knee. It's curious that this is sort of being seen as a new thing when the same thing happened through the whole WBBL where there were a couple of teams where where everybody in the team did and there were a few teams where some of the players did and some mm. didn't and, and there were some teams that didn't at all and and in terms of the why of that it it mostly seemed to come down more to a, a kind of lack of surety about whether it's our place to do this you know whether whether uh, for some of those individual players, whether they felt like they had a a right to do it or uh, whether it was relevant to them, I don't know. But there were, you know, you'd notice all of the English players, for instance, who had been doing it throughout their home summer, um, kept doing it throughout the WBBL, even though others on their team weren't. So I, I suppose it's one of these things where there could be 
hundreds of different reasons why people might make the decisions that they make and, and there'll be individual decisions. And so it, there's, there's no point really speculating about it unless we get the chance to ask and unless people want to make a public statement about it. Across the ditch in Wellington at the Basin Reserve, uh, New Zealand wrapped up a, a straight sets victory over the Windies in their two test match series. So the Windies go winless on the tour across the formats, um, which is fairly disappointing given how well they played at different times against England, certainly at the start of their, their tour. Um, there was no Kane Williamson due to the birth of his first child, but Henry Nichols made 174 and really did step up in the first innings and, and set it up for New Zealand who as it was in the first test they were able to bowl out the Windies cheaply and force the follow on and win by an innings they only had 12 runs to play with actually in, in the uh, in the follow on so there was some jeopardy there towards the end as to whether they'd need to bat again but they got there by an innings and 12 runs first time around Kyle Jamison picked up five uh, Southie the other five Jamison's really making a name for himself Jeff tall striking kind of bowler you know blonde hair and uh, I mean we always think of Bolton Southie but I mean obviously Wagner completing that trio but they've got four legit test level fast bowlers now and they've still got the likes of Matt Henry floating around in the background yeah, yeah. as well you know how well he bowled in that World Cup final and um, and Lockie Ferguson with that pace so they're in quite good nick New Zealand as far as fast bowling stocks go at the moment and nice to see Tim Southey still swinging some wickets out and you know, but I guess he's a player who's been probably written off half a dozen times and manages to come back and keep going. Yeah, the wickets were shared across those four quicks in the second innings. So uh, the Windies leave, as I say, having not got on the board at all. New Zealand, interesting story that bobbed up on that final day was that there was a suggestion that if New Zealand won there, that they would overtake Australia as the number one Test playing nation, and, and not not on the World Test Championship ladder, but on the on the ranking side of the equation. Mm. Ben Gardner wrote a, a terrific piece on Wisdom.com about this, saying you know it would be fitting if New Zealand uh, went ahead and took the number one spot, just when no one gives a fuck about that anymore, and everyone's moved uh, moved over to the to the WTC. In the end, they fell like decimal point short, or whatever it is, a tenth mm. of a point short of overtaking Australia and, and getting to that place for the first time but yeah it's a reminder that they did beat India and they are more than a puncher's chance of being at Lords next year if results go their way they can make it to the World Test Championship finals and Jeff that linked directly through to uh, another segment on the show which we're bringing back today. So Paul Frame dropped me a note on Patreon during the week asking if we could get um, Daniel Norcross's winter update. Now uh, for those of you who are new to the show this might take some explaining. I'll give it my best shot. Jeff you might have to colour in the gaps here but Dan Norcross uh, came up with the the theory that the six months of the English winter or off season corresponds with the six years of the Second World War so 1939 to 1945 and he tracks the winter through these landmarks, landmark moments uh, through the war. But, of course, last winter when he sent his final update to us, it was just when coronavirus was taking over and it wasn't clear um, what was going to happen with the English season. And, of course, it got pushed out to July before we saw any serious action through the domestic season and, and those test matches in the bio bubble. But uh, Paul wants to know how this all ties together now, seven or eight months later, and I thought, what better time to... Get Dan on the line, considering the very different planet we live on now after the global pandemic and the very different story he has to tell. This is your final word, World War II update from the soon-to-be free trading port of London. 
where, if you need a tin of spam and some medicated loo roll, I know a splendid black market trader by the name of One-Eyed Alf, who would even throw in a packet of powdered egg and a bag of rat giblets if you're willing to burst the buboes on his upper back. You may recall, back in late March, the world was celebrating as a uranium-235 bomb was dropped on the Japanese industrial city of Hiroshima, killing 80,000 people and bringing with it, we thought, the end of the war and the resumption of normality. A second, and almost certainly needless, bomb was planned for Nagasaki three days later, with the inevitable cessation of hostilities to follow by the end of March. In a curious quirk of counterfactual fate, however, the atomic bomb over Hiroshima vaporised a pair of sickly mating bats, hurtling tiny particulates of a hugely contagious virus 9,000 miles from east to west on prevailing gale force 5, or 5G winds, across Asia, into Europe, before settling finally at San Moritz, where a convention of deposed monarchs, including Michael II of Romania, King Zog III of Albania, Anastasia, daughter of the late Nicholas II, and the former Edward VIII, Duke of Windsor, were having an enormous wake for the recently deceased Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler. Simultaneously infected while riding a four-man bobsleigh on the Cresta Run, they passed on this deadly virus to their unnecessarily huge entourages and ultimately the world. Planned wars in Korea, Indochina, Israel and Algeria, as well as civil wars the length and breadth of South and Central America were all abandoned, owing to social distancing, though Cuba, with its second-to-none health service, still managed to squeeze in a coup d'etat. Chez sera, sera. Draft dodger Don Bradman was left stranded on an average of 97.94 after Ashes series in 1946 and 1948 against an England team of nine stone weaklings living on a diet of sawdust of the charred remains of Coventry Cathedral had to be postponed for 75 years. For decades, absolutely nothing happened as history ground to a halt. And while some sport did take place behind closed doors, as philosopher-poet Shane Warne said, if a Jimmy Anderson takes his 600th wicket at the Aegeus Bowl and there's only me, Keezy, Wardy, Athers and Nasser there to see it, was it worth being dragged away from Series 3 of Money Heist to watch it? Indeed. All of the world was under the control of the virus, apart from one small village in Oceania, called Eotiaroea, where a magic potion of competent governance had been concocted by a druid named Jacinda, which released her people and allowed them to flourish so bountifully that they came within 0.086 ranking points of taking over top spot in the ICC test rankings, at which point this alternative history lost all credibility and collapsed in on itself. Quite frankly, I should have stuck to recalibrating it all along the lines of the Hundred Years' War, which, assuming we take a timeline of October 2019 to April the 1st, 2021, would have us currently in 1431 and Catholics roasting on a papist 
tire as that pesky, troublemaking minx Joan of Arc gets a hot reception after daring to defy pusillanimous but vengeful milk toast Henry VI, who would ultimately lose the 116-year-old contest on a technical knockout, leaving England friendless, weak, and doomed to play out a 30-year civil war while the rest of Europe came up with the Renaissance. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Happy Christmas. So there's Daniel Norcross bringing us up to date the only way he knows how. Completely bonkers, but utterly brilliant as well. And I'm glad to know that, uh, Jeff, that the COVID virus really uh, comes from a collection of former failed monarchs with Nazi sympathiser tendencies coming together and it was due to their meeting that we uh, um, had this dreadful pandemic and I quite like the twist at the end too how he um, moved into the 100 years war and what he was really talking about there about no deal Brexit and all the cream on the cake there Dan bringing in all the different references so I hope you enjoyed that we might get him to check in again later in the English winter the the war that never ends the the, the John Birmingham future crash uh, of of merging timelines that's that's what we live in and you know frankly i never trusted emperor franz joseph uh, just right from the beginning wasn't sold wasn't sold on him at all and um it's good to feel vindicated uh while we're sticking with england they are going to tour sri lanka for two test matches in january we knew that was happening but we now know a bit more about it so they'll both be played at gaul Ben Stokes won't be there. Jofra Archer won't be there. They're fairly clear about resting players that have been in bubble after bubble after bubble, and they've made the call for these two players that in order to have them fit for the India Test matches, which have also been announced, uh, they'll miss out on the two against Sri Lanka. Rory Burns is also staying at home to be with his wife for the birth of their first child, and Ollie Pope's not quite yet fit but he'll be in Sri Lanka training, but they want to have all four of those guys ready for the, the India series, which will follow in, in February. So um, we've got two test matches in Gaul and then four in India, two at Chennai and then two at that new stadium that Donald Trump <laughs> opened up last year where 100,000 people can can get through the gates. So we'll be, we'll be keeping a close eye on that series on the final word as we go through the Australian summer and the English winter. The ground where the president announced the the famous Korean cricketer Su Chin Tendulkar. Um, <laughs> he's yet another proud moment in that particular administration. It's pretty remarkable that England have actually got dates and locations out of the BCCI, considering that the Australian women's team is supposed to have the Indian women's team visiting in January and we still haven't heard anything more about that. If we're getting, getting actual fixture details more than two weeks in advance out of um, that particular mob is pretty outstanding work yeah surely there's no chance that series is going ahead hypercourst on twitter john leather one of our um, patrons was tweeting about this yesterday all the cricket that's been made possible through the pandemic for india's men and yet india's women they're not even sure if they're coming to australia in a couple of weeks for shame i'm sure they're not but they won't they won't actually say that they're not yeah exactly it'll, it'll get cancelled the day before it's meant to happen or or something like that uh, in addition to the test matches by the way they're going to have a bio bubble set up to play T20s and one day as when England are there so it's a full a full tour and considering what a month ago we were expecting that to be in the UAE that they're mm-hmm. going to be in India is a good development I suppose from Indians perspective but uh, yeah I mean we know how easily these things can come a cropper with COVID so a bit of a watch this space there Jeff before we go to our feature interview I think we should find time for just a little tiny bit of Nerd Pledge just a tiny one 
that's a tiny little Nerd Pledge <laughs> announcement because it's Nerd Pledge, it's the game that we play with the lovely people on our Patreon page. And uh, what happens is that they support the show by sending us a number of dollars and cents financial support. But that number of dollars and cents is not just an ordinary number, it's a cricketing number. And we have to guess what the cricketing number is. Now, the first of these comes through from, we often say friend of the show, but we'd be hard pressed to find more of a friend of the show, possibly the number one ranked friend of the show. I don't want to sort of throw around arbitrary numerical distinctions, although this is a, a series about numbers, but I would say in in the group of number one friends of the show, Andrew Dono Donison. You see what we did with that nickname? It's very clever. We do that in Australia. It's, we, we really, really go out on a limb when we're working out what to call people. And Dono, uh, bless his giant pumping heart, has sent through $2.45. And what might two forty five suggest to you, Adam Collins? When I first met Dono on the internet in 2001, he went by the nickname of Growler. He was he was growler. Oh, he was growler before he was. I think that relates to uh, Andrew Gowers, the former uh, Hawthorne wingman, who who went by the nickname Growler as well. But um, so I knew is him that as that because it, is that because those big jugs of beer, those like four and a half litre ones that you buy in the Northern Territory, are called Growlers. <laughs> that could if it relates to Donna, that could easily be the case. Uh, so his number was uh, two dollars forty five. Now two forty five is a number we'll probably be watching this week. Mitchell Starks on two hundred and forty four Test wickets. Uh, Garth McKenzie mm. took 246, so at some point Stark will be on, on 245 as he uh, presumably uh, takes another step uh, as far as that ladder is concerned of Australian great bowlers. Uh, but instead of talking about a modern-day player, I'm going to talk about one of our... Jeff, that's right, I couldn't help myself, a dusty old bastard. If you haven't been listening to the Storytime Weekend Edition, let's assume you have, but if you haven't, and this is where I go back and take a look at a player who didn't necessarily have an illustrious test career, but did have a test career a long time ago, has a story that's worth telling the Final Word community all about, and in this instance, the 245th Test cricketer ticks all of those boxes. Jeff, a player, I must admit... Test cricketer for who? Which, which Australia. Country? Australia, and not only, oh, okay. and not only, not only an Australian Test cricketer, but a Victorian Test cricketer who I had never mm. heard of, which I'm surprised by because he plays in an era which I've read a lot about. But let's go through it. His name is Les Joslin. Now, Les played one Test match in 1968 as a 20-year-old, a left-handed batsman. So he has this brilliant start for Victoria as an 18-year-old. Two tons in the shield, one of which I think was in a Sheffield Shield winning side. Jack Ryder, former Australian captain and, and Australian selector at the time, loved him. They thought, this guy is the next Neil Harvey. Of course, Harvey had retired not long before that. And they're like, we're all in on this guy. So they picked him kind of out of nowhere to play against India at the SCG in 1968, early 1968. Now, it didn't go well. He had a double failure there, didn't cope too well with the Indian spinners. But nevertheless, they took him on the tour to England that year, the Ashes Tour of 1968. Didn't do well enough to get himself a test berth. Played in the tour games occasionally, but it was, was mostly there, you know, getting experience for the career that he, that he might continue to have. But in the end, it went completely the other way. By the time he was 22, so you know, barely two years after making that test debut, he was out of the Victorian side. By age 23, he was back playing sub-district cricket. He'd left grade cricket altogether 
And that was that. A one-test wonder in, in the best traditions of the term, really, as far as he was a shooting star who we never saw much more of. Um, Bryden Coverdale, our former colleague, who now um, is, a, is a reality TV show superstar on Channel 7, The Shark, he wrote uh, a long Cricket Monthly piece about him a few years ago, which was under the title Australia's Forgotten Prodigy, which is worth a read. Really interesting to hear the story in more depth. But that's the man in question today so 245 Les Joslin whether that's Dono's man or not it could easily be I suspect Jeff with Dono we're going to be going back and forth for some time I noticed we have a lot of revisits coming up on the weekend show on story time for some ones that we haven't got right so we'll we'll just have to add Dono to the pile once he lets us know the second number coming in today well wouldn't you know it it starts with a two the next number's a one. And the final number is a three. It's 213. <laughs> 2.13, the golden number of the final word. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, uh, you'll know that the person it comes in from is none other than Tim Vanderpump, the party liaison. So the party number from the party liaison... Uh, it all comes together. 213, this is the number that, that has so many great applications in cricket. Of course, it's Edgebaston 99. It's Elise Perry at North Sydney Oval. We did the entire segment on the show some months back where I looked at every single permutation of 213 in international cricket ever. We might need to clip out that that uh, segment and put it up somewhere so that people can refer to 213 in future. But Adam, what I've decided to do, given 213 does keep coming up um, once in a while, just from people who want to hear the party sound effects, is that we'll delve into first class cricket and just have a look at maybe one little reference to a 213 that could occur in, in the level below international cricket. So first off, I would like to do a Keanu Reeves, Jeff Bridges bit out of speed and say, pop quiz, hot shot. Who are the four test cricketers for South Africa who averaged more than 50 with the bat? Got any inklings? Jeff, we'll go behind the curtain here. As you asked me that question, I got a knock on the door in our room saying, COVID test. So I've just had a, a COVID <laughs> swab up my nose and down my throat uh, before I answer your question. So what was it again? There are four South Africans who averaged over 50 with the bat. Okay. Um, can you tell me who okay. some of them are? I think I probably can. Well, Jack Callis... Had an average well yep. above 50. Graham Pollock had an average well above 50. Barry Richards had an average well above 50. No, fo- not Barry Richards. Oh, it wasn't Barry Richards. Well, that's a, that's a, no. I'm surprised to hear that. Once, um, the, the, third one, the third one's recent-ish, contemporary of Callis. Uh, Graham Smith? No, he wouldn't have averaged over 50. Uh, Hashim Amla wouldn't have probably by the end. Uh, a contemporary of Jacques Callis who averaged over 50. Uh, Daryl Cullen and Gary Kirsten... No, no, they were both 40s. Much more exciting players than that. Oh, of course, A.B. de Villiers. How could I forget uh, <laughs> the most talented player of all? So, uh, okay, so who have I, have I got them right? So we've got uh, yep. three so, of the so four. So that's three? Yep. And then there's the one that links to this story. Oh, okay. So what? What is this a player I'm going to know or is this a player that goes back some time? You, this goes back a long time. This, okay. this is the earliest of the lot. And, and that player is Dudley Norse, mm, mm. who played for South Africa in the, the middle of the 20th century. Dudley Norse was a great South African batsman. His father also played for South Africa um, in the early 1900s. And his father was named Arthur William Norse. And so, of course, his nickname was Dave 
because when you have two very boring names, you get nicknamed with a third boring name. So Dave Norse played domestic South African cricket until he was 57 and not surprisingly had the highest ever runs tally in South African domestic cricket. He played for so long that he actually played in a provincial team with his son, a la Shivner and Chanderpool. So Dudley Norse and, and Dave Norse played together. Inspector Norse. <laughs> That's what he think they would be if you play cricket with me. Yeah, that's right. No, no, Dave's here. Um, he he played in the triangular series in 1912. England, South Africa, and Australia played a triangular Test series that Adam and I are very interested in. And Dave Norse was a prominent part of the South African team on that tour. And after being absolutely smashed by both England and South Africa, repeatedly, you know, losing by an innings and so on. South Africa played a touring game against Hampshire in which they got rolled in the first innings and then in the second dig they batted out a draw thanks to Dave Norse making 213 which he clobbered in 255 minutes with 31 boundaries so went at a very good clip and that is another 213 that goes all the way back to Tim Vanderpump party liaison. Very nicely done, Jeff. Thank you to Vanderpump. Thank you to Donison. Two strong, bold contributors to The Final Word. You can be one of those as well. Patreon.com forward slash The Final Word. Uh, we're having a great time making story time each weekend. It's usually about an hour or so of us discussing numbers. A lot of work goes into it, uh, but it's totally worth it because it's so much fun. So if you want to be part of that little game that we're playing on the weekends, get in there with your nerd pledges. Patreon.com forward slash The Final Word. And Jeff, that might be a timely point in the show to press pause, to take a breath, to grab a cup of tea, and then I'll be back talking down the corridor to Darbut Milan. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, they may put out a monthly magazine, but they don't only put out a monthly magazine. That's the confusing part. Sometimes they put out other things, like a quarterly magazine that's the Night Watchman, and then sometimes they put out one-off publications where they say, let's gather all the best things that we've published in this magazine or that magazine and put them out together. And that's what they have done with the Golden Summers collection. Now, this one is one that you will want to hear about if you like your cricket, because if you get it now you can still get it in time for Christmas to give to people it's a beautifully presented book and what they've done is for a long time in Wisdom Cricket Monthly they've run this series called Golden Summers where they'll ask a writer to write about the season in their lives that was the best the one that stood out to them it might not be the most famous it might not be the 05 Ashes or 01 at Calcutta but it's the one that spoke to them and, and it could be a really unmemorable summer for some other people but you'll get an insight from this writer into why it mattered to them a personal connection they've assembled a wonderful collection of writers look it may include both of us um, but let's not dwell on that <laughs> it, it also includes a lot of people more famous and better at writing than us as well and it's a, a beautifully presented wonderful read with 50 golden summers collected in this one golden summers book yeah it's a gem i'm so so glad they've done this because it's often been my most enjoyable read of the month is as far as the magazine's concerned is flicking to that because you usually get the backstory of the person woven through i remember when i was invited to write this back in 2016 i put a lot of work into it because it meant a lot to me because i'd read these before and i talked about the 1994-95 summer and that ended up becoming a podcast of course the australia a 
um, project I was working on last year. The germ of that was writing this column, uh, and now that the, the team at Wisdom Cricket Monthly and the Night Watchman have pulled it all together, um, Jeff, you mentioned some huge names that have written for this uh, in cricket journalism and beyond as well. So, so I mean, people like Shield Berry, David Friff, Stephen Fay, Emma John, Tanya Aldred, Ellie Aldroyd, Lawrence Booth, who's the current editor of the Almanac, Mark Wood, Heather Knight, Derek Pringle, Vic Marks. I mean, some brilliant names all the way through. Uh, so, yeah, we're we're proud to be associating uh, with them in this project. Henry Blofeld, Tom Holland. Daniel Norcross, Tim Key, Ted Dexter, I mean, Felix White. So many people have been on the final word uh, in the past, I'm proud to say, here too. So there's a brilliant cover. I tweeted it out yesterday. I had never seen this photo before, Jeff. It must be where the Olympic cauldron was in 1956. So above the Olympic stand, looking down, a, a man who was dressed in presumably his work attire, who's laying across... Um, with his arm up like he's on a banana lounge, with his trousers off and his shirt off, watching the Australia-West Indies Test match of 1960-61 at the MCG, where, of course, at the time there was the world record attendance uh, at that at that day of cricket. So a nice memorable moment captured there on the cover as well, and you get into the book and it's an absolute belter. So uh, for final word, listeners, we have a special... We've always got a special, Jeff, when it comes to the work we do at Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If you go to nightwatchman.net, you'll find the book link straight up. We'll put it in the show notes as well, but nightwatchman.net, and all you need to do is pop in gold TFW. That's the code in capitals, gold TFW, and you'll get yourself a three-pound discount. And that's especially relevant now because if you order the book before the 17th of December in the UK, you'll get it before Christmas. What a perfect Christmas gift uh, for uh, a lover of cricket riding, of a lover of long, lazy summers. You can't go better than the Golden Summers book. The beautiful thing about cricket is that it's a game that you can go to watch and get your Rishabh pants off. It's a hardback edition, this book. I didn't mention before, 100 full-colour illustrations, so it's a really beautiful tome. Uh, Check it out on the website, nightwatchman.net, and if you want to pick one up, Gold TFW. Can we please get a radio station? Because that is (laughs) going to sound fantastic. That's what you put in. It'll be in the notes. Uh, Check it out for Christmas, the Golden Summers. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. This is the Final Word, and with me today, I have England batsman, and at the moment, hotel quarantine guest, David Milan. We are both sitting in the Pan Pacific Hotel in Perth, and that gave me the idea that we should have a chat. You're on day nine. Give me your experience so far of sitting in this very 80s-style hotel. Uh, yeah, I need to be careful. I don't want to get in trouble here. I need to be really positive about this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's... Uh, it is what I expected in terms of the two-week quarantine. I'm on day nine, so it's um, you know it's as I expected. I'd probably say the room is not what I expected, and and uh, and what have you. But um, you know, it's just the way it is. I think there's so many people that have had to go through this in these uh, unusual circumstances this year. But um, yeah, it's been challenging so far. I must admit, I finally got a treadmill in, so that's going to be me after this. Uh, <laughs> after we've uh, finished here, I'm going to have to run and start getting in some sort of shape. But yeah, it's just trying to find ways to. to to kill time basically so um you know it's uh it's amazing what you uh end up doing to kill time yeah stuck in the hotel i don't know how you how you found it but it's been uh yeah i found it quite challenging yeah well, we've got a, a 10 month old baby so i suppose we've had our hands full to that extent whenever she's awake and you know sort oh of crawling gosh. around the room and it's been pretty intense i suppose on the other side of it the other friends of mine who've done 
the solo 14 days, that solitude, it, I mean, does, I must admit, I'm on day, I don't know what day now, maybe 11 or something like that, and I'm now feeling anxious about leaving the room. I'm not sure if you are sort of got that as well. Like whenever the, there's a knock on the door saying it's breakfast, dinner or lunch, you don't even have interaction with, with those people. You're not allowed to open the door until they've made way, of course. I mean, it's a very, very unusual experience, isn't it? It is. It, it, it seems, um, you know, I understand why it's happened, but it seems really strict, you know, when it doesn't really need to be that strict. I think we all know the rules. We have to sit in our room for 14 days. I think the breakfast thing, I've had to leave notes under the door saying, please stop waking me up for breakfast. Um, <laughs> you know, it's seven o'clock. It's, I don't know what time yours. Yeah, you get yeah. your knock of mine's at se- 7 a.m. every morning and then you get dinner at five. But who eats dinner at five o'clock at night? <laughs> like, and you're in quarantine. It's not like you've got to wake up for work or anything. It's... Yeah, so I find that um, quite extraordinary how the, how the timings and whoever's come up with these timings or what have you. Um, but yeah, I think you're lucky that you've actually got someone to speak to. Yeah. You know, I'm sort of counting down the hours until my wife wakes up so I can just pester her, but with a call at, what's it, 2.30 or 3 o'clock our time mm-hmm. here. So um, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. You know, actually, you know, the, this treadmill, as I said earlier, has been sitting outside my room for five days and it's been too heavy for me to move and they've just not allowed anyone to help me move the treadmill in because of the virus and you're like it's slightly extraordinary but um you know eventually they 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 got the treadmill in and it's sort of you know even when you speak to them and you say oh look maybe twist it this way they're like you're not allowed to speak to me and it's like well you're three meters away from me four meters away from (laughs) you like you're not going to get the virus you're wearing a mask you know it's uh, so it's sometimes i think it's slightly over the top but but i do understand why it needs to be you know to to have crowds of games, to have people being around, move, moving around normal, uh, normally in life, you know, um, you know, with this virus, you have to be quite strict. So, you know, but it's just getting that balance. What I've been thinking about more and more is that when we leave here, I mean, obviously living in the UK as well and not having been abroad, I know you have been to South Africa recently, but where the virus is everywhere, we've been conditioned to just a life with masks, of course, and a life of being so cautious due to the proliferation of the virus in the UK. Whereas here, of course, we'll still be careful and cautious and do the right thing and social distance where appropriate and, and so on. But we're walking out these doors into a place where there is literally no COVID at the moment. I mean, that's kind it's quite a yeah. quite it's gonna be quite a strange and liberating moment well you say that but then when you, you go straight back into the bbl and the, and you're in a hub there as well uh, just in sure, case yeah. you know there's an outbreak somewhere in, in in the country so that um you know we're still able to travel across borders mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know so i don't think it's going to be as normal as what i thought it was going to be um you know with these new hub rules and what have you but you know you still be allowed to go out for dinner and go for coffees and things like that and i think that's just a sort of normal life that you want to get back to you know you don't necessarily have to meet people outside of your your bubble but as long as you can you know go for a beer or go for a coffee or go for dinner and just get out of the hotel because you know it's so tiring just sit in the hotel i know people probably don't understand that you know and they go oh well you're just chilling you sit in the hotel it's like having a holiday but it's actually mentally draining just mm. sitting there and just staring at the tv you know so you want some sort of normality which will be fantastic when we do leave um and you know that will be down to these strict rules that they've got in in, in place but you know, um, hopefully, hopefully, as you know, more gets known about the virus, people don't have to be in a room for 14 days. You know, one of the bizarre things I found here is, you know, just from speaking to the the, the nurse, is we, we have a test on day 11, and you know, you get your results on day 12, but then you still have to sit for the next two days in your room, even though you've been proven to be negative. It's not like mm. you're going to suddenly pick it up over those next two days, and if they did, you'd probably have another test afterwards. So it just doesn't make sense why you've sat in there for two more days when. You know, you've got your results back on day 12, you know, so, yeah, I, I, some of the stuff I do find bizarre, but, you know, it's all understandable to 
to allow us to get outside and, as you said, have some sort of normal life. Yeah, the quirk where some states interpret 14 days one way and other states interpret 14 days another has kind of got in my head a little bit, but let's try and get beyond yeah, that. Yeah, explain I suppose. that to me again. You're, you're trying to explain that earlier. No, yeah, I'm pretty uh, well, keen to explain that to me. So what were you saying about, about well, it it's, it's, to it's, other places? Here it's 14 cycles of 24 hours, whereas, as I understand it, based on a friend of mine that was quarantining in, in Queensland, it's 14 nights, which, of course, is quite different when you think about the way the clock works. I mean, if you arrive of a morning compared to at night, that 14 nights can be a lot different, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. 14 cycles or 24 hours, but hey, it is one of these, as goes the cliche. Uh, working a little bit with uh, Jimmy Anderson through the English summer, he made the observation that the most mentally taxing part of being in a bubble, in England more so, was being at the ground. And when you go to bed at night and when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you see is your, your place of work. I suppose in saying that, you've had quite a bit of success in bubble cricket if you like so far but can you elaborate on that a little bit the idea that as a a sportsman how important it is you can unplug at the end of a day compared to now where that's just not possible I think we're talking about the bubble and stuff I've been quite fortunate in the fact that I've just been involved in 2020 so I've only been in there for Mm. short periods of time so you're in there for maybe a week of training you play your three or four or five or six games and then you're out whereas the guys that have played the test plus the ODIs and the the one day is, you know, that's a lot of time sat in a hotel room, you know, and, and, and you're right. I found, so I found the bubble at, um, at the GS ball really, really good, really easy. You know, you had balconies as you do in, in Manchester, but you've got the golf course as well. So you're able, cause it's an onsite golf course you're able to play. So you could mm. get out during the day and you could go and get some fresh air. You could go to the putting green or something. So it was always something to, to kill an hour or two hours outside of the hotel. Whereas at Manchester, you know, you, you weren't able to leave the hotel um, unless you were going to the ground pretty much. So, there wasn't really much else to do apart from stare at the ground, as Jimmy was saying. You're looking outside your window and you're just looking at the ground. Same with the GS ball, but you have a different release by getting out. You know, so that is the mentally tiring bit of it is that it just feels like it's cricket, cricket, cricket. So if you and in life, no matter what you do, there has to be a balance of cricket, working hard, doing what you need to do for your four or five hours and then the other aspect of it is switching off and getting your mind on other things and, and getting sort of away from the pressure situation, which when you're, you know, I suppose if you're having a really bad, bad run for argument's sake, whether you're a batter or a bowl and you're looking out the room, all you see is the cricket and it just reminds you of what's going on. I can imagine that being extremely tough. Yeah, I suppose the good news is with with vaccines now being uh, given the green light that maybe this won't be a reality for much longer. So your tourist Africa could conceivably be the last sort of time you've you've been in those in, in that setting for international cricket. And you left there. I mean, that press release that came out from the ICC after the final T20 that you played in, where you made that unbeaten 99 clean sweep, all the rest of it. And you're not only the number one ranked T20 player in the world, but you're the highest ranked T20 international player of all time. I mean, did you know that was kind of in the offing? And, and how did that take you when you realised that when you look at those all-time charts on the website, there you are, number one? Yeah, it's a strange feeling, really. Um, if you think about all the unbelievable players that have played 2020 cricket and, and been, been in and around, uh, you know, the guys that I've looked up to for, for all those years that have been banging them in 2020 cricket, it's been, you know, it's, it is you know, an unbelievable feeling. You know, the first time when I got told I was number one after the Australian series, you know, our analyst actually came up to me and was like, you do know you're, it's, it's the fourth highest ranking of all time. And I was like, what, really? Like, I didn't even feel like I'd really done that well. I mean, you look at Barbara Azam averages over 50 and Kohli averages over 50. So you think that, you know, the way they play, the way as consistent as they are, that they'd be, you know, there and thereabouts with, with the rankings because they're, you know, they're that good, good players and Chris Gale obviously dominated for so long 
you know, so to, to, to have seen that and then after this series of, you know, be told suddenly you're the highest ranking, you know, that's, you know, it took me back a little bit because, um, you know, I don't feel like I've done anything different to what the other guys have done as such. But, you know, the, the rankings obviously work that, that they work that out in a certain way to, to, to work that is. And I'm guessing it's, um, you know, it's done on, on consistency and, you know, touch wood, I've been quite consistent in that, um, in those 19 odd games that I've played. I know it's been over four years or five years, but it's been, you know, pretty consistent. Yeah, yeah, well, it has been. You look at your numbers, 19 games, an average of 53, uh, 10 times above 50 in 19 hits, including 100, av- strike rate 149. All the numbers are there. Um, I was interested the extent to which that is a, a big step up from your domestic numbers or your, your normal T20, non-international T20, where, I mean, you've played for a very long time, having to boot all the way back in 2008. But it, it's as though when you were able to play for England that your game went to another level. Is, is that how you would see it? And why would you identify that shift? So I think, you know, when you start playing 2020, you know, you know I, started, I played my first one in 2006. The game was totally different back then. Mm. You know, even we won, we won the, at Middlesex, we won the 2020 comp in 2008, you know, and you were chasing 150, 160 every game. You were never really chasing 180s, 190s. So you could play a, a different way. 2020 was a different way of playing. You didn't have to, you know, try and get 200 every game on a flat one. And when someone got 200, it was like, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, the it's, it's impossible to get. Whereas over the last three or four years, probably since this England white ball team has developed in 50 over cricket, 2020 cricket has slightly changed as well. People are much more attacking. Scores are more consistently around the 175 to 185, 190 if you're playing on good wicket. So you have to change your game. You have to develop ways of attacking for longer periods of time and be able to clear the ropes more often. You know, back in when I started, you didn't really need to hit sixes that often. You could just sort of hit a boundary and over get one, get couple, you, you know, you, you're, you're batting eight, nine and over without taking really risks. Whereas now you're chasing 200, 190, you know, you need those big overs to change it. But if you look at, you know, I, I, I think it was from, might've been from sort of 2016. I came back from the PSL um, my first year and I realized how far behind, you know, the way I was playing 2020 cricket was compared to, you know, the international players that were playing IPLs and PSLs and big bashes and um, place, places like that where you sort of, they, they, you know, the game was developing quicker than what it was potentially in, say, county cricket, you know, in, in the NatWest Blast. So, you know, I, I went away, I had a look at that, I realised that I need to, to be more attacking. And I think if you look at my, my stat, you know, like last year, went to Bangladesh, you know, an average 48, a strike rate of 149. The NatWest T20 Blast scored 500 runs at a, strike rate of 145 150 something like that as well so mm. you know the numbers have been similar over the last two or three years i had a stinker in 2018 i think with middlesex i didn't score a run in, in 2020 cricket you know for them but apart from that you know my numbers have been my strike rate's been a lot higher than what it has over my career just because the game's changed and, and you have to and then when you play in this england white ball team you know there's so many good players there's so many good players below you there's so many players pushing you that you know you always try and take that positive option slightly more in this team you know it helps you playing on better wickets more consistently you know when you play county cricket to some extent you might play on the same wicket three times you know so the fir- the first score might be a 180 and then by the last game you know 145 150 is winning you the game mm-hmm. um you know so your game changes consistently even at your home grounds you know whereas international cricket it very rarely do you see 140 wickets unless you bat absolutely badly you know it's usually 
even a, a wicket that's been used, it's still about a 160 wicket. So the scores are slightly higher all the time because of the quality of the batsmen um, and what have you. So I think, you know, playing in this team with the way they've played, you obviously have to up it. But I think, you know, it was a conscious effort for me from about 2016 to actually be slightly more attacking at certain times of the game and things like that that has sort of helped me when, I've, when I have played for England. Yeah, it's quite interesting that even until recently, despite the fact you've been on this kind of upward curve since 2016 with the way you've played and how the domestic leagues have informed your change of cricket or change of approach, that there's been this kind of idea that, well, is there room for you in the England top three when you might have players like Johnny Bairstow, Jason Roy and Joss Butler as the incumbents at any given moment and whether you're quick enough? But you look at the numbers, I mean, you've got a 48 delivery international 100 you've made that unbeaten 99 in you know roughly double time a couple of weeks ago in south africa it's not as though you've been the glue style batsman the anchor i think they call it don't they isn't that the jargon that might be the role that people think you play but you're actually doing something very different now yeah it's um you know i think i think you do need someone that's i wouldn't say is the anchor but someone that actually spends time at the middle but scores at a good rate you know i don't think there's a lot of place anymore to be 40 off 38 balls like you know in the past you could probably do that if you want it, if you're on 40 you probably need to be on about 40 off 30 31 32 balls with guys playing around you so you know that's that's changed quite a lot over the last probably three or four years the, the big thing for me is I want to score runs I think that's the, the big thing you know I, I don't want to just score 20 off 12 balls and, and get out I actually pride myself in being there at the end and trying to win games of cricket. So it's not as such that I want to score 50 or I want to score 100. It's as such that I want to actually be there to win games of cricket. So I mm. think that actually helps my mentality as well. It does help that you play with Johnny Bairstow, Joss Butler, Jason Roy, Owen Morgan, Ben Stokes, who naturally take the game on. So that takes a lot of the pressure off you. A lot of the times, if I was to play with you know guys that are slightly slower all the time as well or might not be as big hitters, you know, then that puts more pressure on someone like myself and we put pressure on each other. Whereas, you know, naturally, Jason Roy is going to hit the first ball for six if it's in his arc. That's just how he plays. He's, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's that good at doing that. Uh, Johnny Bairstow is the same. If a spinner comes on and it's in his area, whether it's first ball, 50th ball, 20th ball, he'll, he'll hit it for six. So that takes the pressure off me quite a lot as well. So I don't think there's any specific way that I go out to play. England haven't told me to play any specific way. They just tell me to do what I do and just say, play your game. Yeah, yeah. And I think that playing your own game thing, right? So the scrutiny upon your first 10 balls, you hear a lot about first 10 balls, he'll be 10 off 10. And whether he goes on with it or not, that's when you know your true value is shown. But it's interesting that you say there, you don't see any value in getting out for 20 off 10. You want to bat through the innings and you know you can accelerate. It's like you have that faith in your game that it doesn't matter if you're 10 off 10 and you, you know, you've found a way into the innings because you know you have that extra gear there. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of talk about 2020 cricket, you know, and unless you've actually played a lot of it, it's really hard to understand and to gauge you know, what's right and wrong. A lot of the people commenting about my first 10 balls, I think, you know, I saw something the other day, you know, I think it's like nine or 10 out of my knocks, you know, I've actually been, you know, a lot quicker. I've had a much better strike rate in my first 10 balls than what everyone's making out to be. Um, right. You know, so it's it's just sort of a, you know, one person says it and suddenly everyone when jumps on it. You know, it's not like you go out to face, ten, get 10 of 10 
it's not like you go out to just go, oh, I'm just going to get myself in here. You know, sometimes you hit four balls out the middle and it goes straight to the field and the next game, you know, like the last game, I hit four out of the middle and they go in the gap and they go for four. So then mm-hmm. suddenly your strike rate changes, you know. And in, in the last four or five games, you know, we've played on used wickets against Pakistan, used wickets against Australia, played against South Africa here and some slow ones, you know, and you, you know, the way I gauge it is, you know, I look at those wickets in, that we played again on in the winter, uh, sorry, in the summer, you know, even guys like Joss and Johnny were, you know, 10 of 10 and 12 of 10 and stuff like that, you know, so it is, I think it also depends on the conditions, but, you know, as with anything, people jump on, on something that they hear, you know, it might be you that says something and someone, you know, they cling on to a lot of things. A lot of people try and break down the games and stats, but one thing that people don't really understand is the first 10 overs don't really make mass, a massive difference in T20 cricket. You know, you can be, 80 of 10 for, for three and then you have a massive partnership and you score 100 off the last 10 because you have the momentum and you're still scoring 180 or you're, you know, or you could be 100 for two after eight overs, nine overs and you go bang, bang and suddenly you're only scoring, you're, you're 110 for four with nine overs to go and you're one wicket away from your tail end is batting. So mm. it's those last 10 overs that are important. Your first 10 set you up, but your last 10 are the ones that actually changes the game you know, so dramatically in, in terms of winning games of cricket. Um, you know, and you've seen that with, with the way England have played over this last couple of couple of games, you know. And, and you look at it with our ball. Uh, when we played with the ball, we might be, teams might be 90 for one or 100 for one after 11 overs. And those last nine overs, we bowl exceptionally well and restrict teams to 160, 170. You know, so those last 10 overs are, are really important in a 2020 game which people sort of lose sight of, especially you've got people that haven't really played 2020 cricket a lot of the times. But I, I trust the way I play. I'm going to get it wrong at some point. We're all going to get it wrong. Uh, we're all going to lose games, make mistakes, uh, take the wrong options. But, um, you know, hopefully I can keep keep doing what I'm doing, um, you know, to keep uh, pressing my case and, and keep pushing for a, for a full-time place in this team. Yeah, especially with the World Cup only 10 months away. It's kind of bizarre that you wouldn't necessarily have a, a, a locked-on place. I'm sure you do now, but this that perception that you were talking about before. Uh, to go backwards before we go forwards a bit, I mentioned before we started recording that I like to, in these interviews, we like to sort of learn a bit more about the backstory of a player. With you, I think one of the more intriguing parts is that you were born in the UK, but you moved to South Africa and grew up in South Africa. We're sort of conditioned to England players who were from South Africa, having gone the other way and having you know grown up in South Africa and, and moved to England to go to school or whatever it is and end up in, in first-class cricket. But you kind of did it in reverse. So you moved to South Africa at age seven, went to school over there, then, then came back to the UK. Just talk us through that transition. What was the, the catalyst for you coming back to England, having gone to South Africa as a kid? Yeah, so obviously parents decided to move over when I was seven. Don't really have much of a choice when you're seven. Um, <laughs> to decide where you're going and when you're going. Uh, but, you know, so then, you know, I was turned 18. I played, finished school, played a couple of first-class games out there or the, for the Boyland amateur team, but their class was first-class. Decided to take a gap year, came over to coach at Arundel School, play for Peterborough Cricket Club up in Peterborough, you know, play for Arundel Town on the Sunday, um, you know, and got an opportunity. My old man knew someone who knew Clive Radley with the MCC Young Cricketers and really you know, gave him a call and really asked him if I could play a couple of games, you know, for the MCC on cricket just to play a bit of a better standard and, you know, than the club cricket that I was playing just to sort of help with my development. You know, I got told, sorry, there's no no place available that will give you a call if there's any availability. And I got a call, I think it was like on a Monday night saying, would you want to play tomorrow in a 
in a game up at Hinkley against Leicester's twos. We've got a couple of injuries and people are struggling. So I jumped at the opportunity. So played played up there, got 80-odd, I think, or 85. Just ended up having a random chat with Clive Radley. Found out I had a British passport. He said he'd be in touch again. And about two or three weeks later, he gave me another call and said, we've got another few injuries, so I fancy playing. Played against Surrey, uh, rocked up, played against Surrey, got 60-odd. Um, and he offered me a contract to join the YCs after that. All right. And then that's sort of how my journey started. I spent about three or four or five weeks in the, on the MCC on cricketers. You know, did really well. I think I scored 300s or two or 300s in the 50-over comp for them. And a, and a couple of clubs had come in. You know, Sussex offered me a week trial. Durham had offered me a trial. Worcester had offered me a trial. So I went up and played a couple of games for them. And then I think from what I've been told, Clive Radley sort of rang John Embry and said, look, there's a kid here who's getting a bit of attention, who's going to get snapped up by one of these other counties. You need to get hold of this guy now. So I got asked to play in a twos game for Middlesex. Uh, Jason Pooley, who's a second team coach, picked me up at a service station, dropped me off at my uh, at the hotel and then knocked on my door about half an hour later. Never seen me play and just sort of said to me, look, we're going to offer you a a uh, contract for the rest of the year and next year so one and a half year contract have a think about it and let us know if you want it so I made a few phone calls the next day my old man said you know jump at the opportunity spoke to Omar Henry who was um, I think he was the convener of selected South Africa back in the day and he was involved with the Boylan cricket where I was playing and he sort of said to me look it's it's a great opportunity you obviously don't know how it's going to work in South Africa you've been offered something concrete jump at the opportunity so I did played it the day I signed so this was maybe on the Wednesday I went in on the Friday to sign my contract and then John Embry said, look, tonight you're going to play at 2020 at the Oval. Um, <laughs> it's going to be your debut for Middlesex. And I was like, all right. And then I got, uh, I think what did I get? I think I got 11 off 22 balls, lost the game for us and didn't see first team cricket again until, until 2008. Um, <laughs> you know, so, but that was, uh, you know, it was a good learning curve because, you know, as I said before in the interview, until you actually play at a certain level against certain people, certain players, proper players, you don't actually realize how um, how big the step up is in terms of what you actually need. So that was a good learning curve for me of, all right, if I want to make it this level, I have to do X, Y, Z. And I went to the twos. I had a good year in 2007, scored a lot of runs. I think I was the leading run scorer in the, in, in the country in twos cricket in 2007, you know, which put me in good stead of having to learn the hard way of having to score runs to get into a team. You know, the Middlesex team when I joined was unbelievable. That O.A. Shah, Ed Joyce, Ed Smith, Straussy was in and out because he wasn't playing the white ball cricket. Then you had Owen Morgan, Billy Godelman, Ben Scott, David Nash, Scott Styrus was the overseas the year I joined. Um, you know, so there were a hell of a lot of players. Nick Compton was there as well. So there's, there were so many players in and around at Middlesex to break in was was extremely tough. So I found like, I found I had to score a lot of runs to break in and to get the attention of the of the coaches, you know, and I think that's sort of taught me a life lesson that nothing sort of comes easy, you know, nothing, you don't sort of just get given things on a plate because you've had one good game or you've, um, you know, you, you've shown talent as a young player, you know, you actually have to earn the right to get into these teams. Was it a big call for you at that relatively young age? I mean, if you've spent your formative years, let's call them, in South Africa, you're playing, you know, first-class cricket over there, albeit briefly as a teenager I suppose at some level when growing up you would have thought there might be a pathway for you to play for South Africa because that's where you were going to school and, and that's where you yeah were playing your cricket and all your friends would have been there and so on yeah um, it's, it's no secret that when I was growing up in South Africa you know when you rock up at seven eight seven years old and you go to school there 
you know, all the sport you see is pretty much South Africa, um, that you wanted to play for South Africa as a kid. That was the the goal. You know, your idols were South African players. Gary Kirsten, Jacques Callis, all these guys were playing at the time. I remember old man used to take us to Newlands to watch South Africa. So that was, when you're growing up, that's what you know. That's, you know, your, your formative years are what you know. So, you know, wanted to play for South Africa growing up. So obviously to make the move over to England was... You know, was as I said, I didn't move over because I was I wanted to play county cricket. It just sort of fell into my place. And the longer I've lived here, the more I've stayed in in the UK. The more I love England, the more I want to live here. The more I don't want to ever go back to South Africa. You know, to to live. You know, this is my home. This is where I want to be. I'm representing England. And looking back, it was the right decision to make at the time. You know, I could have taken the gamble and gone. You know, I can move back to South Africa and, and, you know, been offered a two-year contract in England. You know, I could use that in my favour in South Africa to get a contract potentially. But, you know, I made a decision that this is where I wanted to be. This is where I wanted to play. You know, my old man was cricket mad. He still used to, the scores used to come up at the bottom of the screen. Andrew Strauss, 150. Go, look, Andrew Strauss got 150 for Middlesex today. Things like that. This was before, obviously, I went over. So, you know, it was something that I knew about but didn't really know too much about. So it was... Yeah, it was a it was a good experience at the end for for me to get over here, and you know I've had no second thoughts at all. And I suppose, given when you come into the first team cricket, two thousand and eight, such a, a a fondly remembered T Twenty season for the club, winning the competition. I know you had um, another unconventional route to international cricket, Dirk Nannis in that that team, of course, who uh, was was uh, leading the, the Middlesex attack. But and then you're kind of in it. You're, you're in the county grind, the sort of eight days a week, so to speak, where you're playing three formats, season after season, trying to develop a claim for, for higher honours. That's the hard yards for a county cricketer, isn't it? It's sort of in, in the mid-20s or early to mid-20s, trying to keep your name in lights, trying to do it day after day after day, season after season. Yeah, it is. Um, county cricket, it's hard to say. I find it, it's, it's, it's really tough you know, in, in the sense that there's, you have so many variables, you know, you have a, a ball, a red ball that moves a lot, a lot more than most countries. You have bowlers that attack a certain length, a certain line, you know, so for me growing up in South Africa, I found that really tough initially of, of you know, the technique that I'd grown up with to actually put that into place in, in, in England. So it took me a while, especially after my first year, you know, the first year you find a way people don't know you bowl a certain way, you know, that second, third, fourth year, you know, I, I was very stubborn in, this is what I want to do, I'm not going to change, you know, and that actually affected me a lot. So it was only until I opened my mind a little bit more about how to play differently in different conditions. You know, I think Chris Rogers being at Middlesex helped a lot. You know, he's watching him play. He was coming over from Australia, which was playing on similar bouncy, quicker wickets with a kookaburra ball to suddenly coming over to England and then still dominating and his technique was suited for both. So to watch him learn from him, speak to him. Adam Voges was the same when they came over. Um, you know, so to, to learn from those guys helped my development a hell of a lot. You know, looking back, I probably should have asked the questions slightly earlier. You know, that's probably one of my strengths now as I speak to a lot of people and I try and take little bits here and there, which, you know, when I was younger, I felt like if I'm going to do it, I want to do it my way. You know, and if I'm going to fail, if I'm not going to make it in England, I'm going to do it my way more than, you know, you have to do this. I do it. I don't score runs. You get a call. You're saying, so you're not getting a contract. You know, it only took until about 2013, I think, where I actually had a big shock where I had a, one of the worst years of my life in four-day cricket. I still scored 900-odd runs in white ball cricket, but I really struggled in four-day cricket. And, and that was sort of the catalyst for me to change a lot of things with the way I trained, the way I the way I am, you know, away from cricket, the balance I have, my support structures, um, fitness-wise, that's sort of changed it. And and you're right, you get into that grinding carry cricket where you just, 
keep scoring enough runs to keep getting a contract and to keep playing and you sort of think that's good enough. Um, so it's until you get sort of a, a big wake-up call that you actually take a step back, reevaluate, look at what's going on and then make positive changes to move forward in the right direction. So after going on that, you know, that very well-known county roller coaster. Press fast forward a bit to 2016. I remember when you were kind of a, you were you were seen as an England Lions veteran. Cause you'd obviously been in and around that that squad for such a long time. Um, a record-breaking season where everybody cashes in. You make uh, 185 off 126 balls in one of the England Lions games, and suddenly it's like, right, this guy's ready. This guy's ready for the next step, and it didn't take long before you got that opportunity in 2017, both initially in, in T20 cricket for England, fantastic taboo for England in that form of the game, making 80-odd in 40-odd balls, player of the match, I remember distinctly there over in, in Cardiff, but then you get your test taboo shortly thereafter as well. As those caps are won, does it feel like all that hard work you've done in the previous decade that you were ready for that next step? Yeah, um, I think it put me in good stead. You know, I think... If I'd got picked when I was probably, I think if I got picked, you know, straight away in 2008, it might have been slightly different with the way I was approaching things then. But, you know, you have a couple of bad years and you sort of start doubting yourself a little bit and you start looking at too many things in in different areas. Um, But, you know, I think the fact that I've, you know, I'd failed so much in county cricket, found a way, played tournaments, Mm. failed in tournaments, gone back to tournaments the year after and applied what I'd learned and what I picked up and then seen the improvement in, in, in the domestic cricket, uh, sorry, in the, in the tournaments to be able to perform at a level, you know, to score 50s of 25 balls in the PSL in 2017, you know, was a massive boost for me considering that, you know, the, the way I played the year before in the PSL wasn't the way I should be playing 2020 cricket. You know, and I think that put me in good stead that when I actually made my debut, I was able to, to just go out there and do what I've, what I've learned instead of going into your shell instead of going and being, you know, I need to score runs international cricket to make it. This is my one chance. It was a bit like, I know what I'm doing now. I've I've got something that I trust. I've put it into practice in two tournaments now. It's worked. I've now done it in the domestic 2020 in in England and it's worked. So I've got full trust in what I'm doing. Mm. Um, And I was just able to allow myself to just play, you know, and it actually worked out really well. It's really interesting that you mentioned the PSL. when going back to look at your career as a whole before we had this conversation you were playing list day cricket in Bangladesh in 2013 and 2015 look no one really does that goes to Bangladesh to play 50 over domestic cricket then you know the PSL you're one of the first players to actually go to Pakistan to play in that final it's as though when you arrived on the international stage you were you know battle hardened from county cricket but also you had this worldliness about you you'd kind of been around the traps quite a bit yeah, and it's amazing how playing in these tournaments, how you, uh, you're you subjected to playing against different players. You know, you're, you're playing in different conditions. You're playing with the pressure of being an overseas player. You're playing with the pressure that you have to perform because you're one of the three or four and you're getting paid five grand, two grand, ten, whatever your contract may be. You're getting paid money by a guy that, seems, that sees you as the one that has to win you the game. So it's mm-hmm. dealing with those pressures, which is what international cricket is. You know, you... Owen Morgan picks you to come in and win your games of cricket. He doesn't pick you to just go, I'll oh, get, a, get a pretty 10 and show us that you belong at this level. It's like, no, you're playing for England. You're, you're here to perform. You know, so I think those experiences, me getting picked later, actually helped me so much more in the sense that I'd, I'd been through those failures of, you know, you know if, imagine I played international cricket and learned what I did my first year of PSL. You know, it probably would have taken me three or four or five years to actually get back into the England team. 
Mm. You know, whereas I'd learned my lessons the hard way in in these in the tournaments playing against. You know, the first year you played PSL, I remember playing against Islamabad United in the semi final. You know, and they had Shane Watson, Andre Russell, Muhammad Irfan, Muhammad Sami, Badri, and Said Ajmal was their bowling attack. And you're like, where are you ever going to face that type of attack unless you're playing international cricket? And that sort of was the lesson that I learned was that if I actually want to make it at that level, I actually have to have a different game. I have to be able to take these guys on. And in county cricket, you can, you know, you might have an Andre Russell and uh, a Jay Dernback and, uh, you know, Sam Curran playing for argument's sake who played international cricket, but there'll be two other guys that haven't played international cricket. And they're the two guys that you can take down, you know, and you can get your strike rate up against them. Um, but when you're playing in these tournaments, there's no, uh, there's no like, uh, I can target these two or three guys because they, you know, they're not very good, and you know, they're only playing because you know we've got eight internationals and they've had to find three other guys. Whereas you play in these tournaments and you're like, you know, these the bowlers are proper bowlers. There's depth in the bowling, there's pace, there's proper spinners. The only bowl maybe one over of part-time spin, whereas sometimes in the UK your part-time spinner bowls three or four overs. You know, that's just because there's so many teams. That's not because the standards in anywhere form, because you've got, you know, in such a long season, people get injured. Um, you know, overseas aren't available for the whole tournaments and stuff like that. So it's, um, you know, so I think playing in the PSL against the pace, against with that pressure as my first real tournament, you know, actually, it, it actually helped me so much with international cricket. Yeah, and, and I suppose that resilience you're touching on there, a lesser player might have copped that Yorker from Rabada on Test Taboo and it, it might have, shaken them I mean it's a similar ball that Nick Madison well, it definitely did I can tell you that much I didn't score a run for the next game the next two games perhaps so but, but I, I, I suppose what I was going to drive to with the question was that they still thought of you as a person who look cops that first up doesn't make a run in the second test yeah you get runs in your third test but they send you to Australia anyway they're like okay like had you been a younger player with less experience they might have thought that would be a chastening experience but for you they're like no no, no he's got this We'll send him to Australia and you go on this massive tour of Australia and New Zealand where you were seemingly in this part of the world for six months. I'm not sure if it was six months, but it certainly felt that way across three formats. You make a test century here where we are in Perth this week or this fortnight quarantining. Have you had a chance to sort of reflect on that part of your career, which at the moment you're not playing test cricket right now, but when you were playing test cricket, the high point, I suppose, was here in Perth. Have you had a chance to kind of step back and think about uh, what a special couple of days they were? Yeah, it was... You know, but that's still the highlight of my career. You know, whether whatever I've done in domestic cricket and you know, twenty twenty cricket for England. You know, score a test hundred uh, for your country is still the pinnacle for me. You know, and to do it here at Perth, you know, was unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know, I remember Cookie speaking after the game and the team talk, saying you know what an achievement it is and what have you, and you know the the pride that you feel of doing that. You know, was you know something that I haven't been able to feel again um so far mm. um, i hope i do at some point but yeah it was a the, the test was a was a strange journey you know it was you know I, I i thought i was quite lucky to get picked for the tests um i got picked for the test on the back of that 2020 debut you know in that first test you know facing rabada you know i think's an unbelievable bowler you know i didn't get runs against him in those in those first in those last two tests you know i think he only got me out once but you know you facing Rabada and you know Maharaj is bowling well a little rough in the next one and I think I was averaging four or five after my first two tests and you know I didn't think I would get another go which is really hard and then you know I got a go in the pink ball test and, and I managed to scrape my well, scrape away to 60 and that one in my next test I managed to scrape another 60 even though I wasn't playing well and that sort of put me up 
put me in um you know a better mindset in the sense that you know what I've, I've not felt like i played well but i feel like I've, I, I haven't played well but i've still been able to score 50 pluses in test cricket which is you know the toughest format in 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 the world um you know and that put me in good stead especially when i was coming over to australia to have that self-belief that you know i can do this i can play at this level you know and i think i probably lost that self-belief you know, we came in from the ashes here where I did well, you know, thinking, you know what, if I can keep improving and keep doing what I'm doing, you know, I could have, um, I could actually make this in test cricket. We went to New Zealand and I struggled in my first three innings. You know, Ben Stokes was coming back. So there was a bit of, you know, is Stokes going to come back in after the all the issues that have gone on with him? And so they were trying to find a spot for him. And suddenly I felt like I was under more pressure to perform every game. So I didn't score runs in the first three games against New Zealand, but got a 50 in my last, in the last test innings, you know, so I felt slightly more secure. And then coming back to England, um, again, Josh Butler got picked and then they're trying to find a way of Stokesy getting in again. So it was a lot of the worries about whether I'm going to play, am I going to be in, am I going to be out? Whereas, you know, when you look at the 2020, it's either you rock up and you're either playing or you're not playing. You're getting a chance, you're not getting a chance. If you're playing, you make the most of it. If you don't, you know, that's fine. You carry the drinks and you you do what you need to be doing. Whereas, you know, I think that worry and the, the desperation almost and the, the wanting to do so well sort of stuffed me up a little bit in my test career towards the end, which, you know, is something that I've taken from that into this 2020 of, you know, I talk a lot about learning of, you know, it's not that important, you know, whether I play get dropped or not it's it's not in my hands all I can do is walking out there having a good mindset trying to score runs you know in, in the sense of enjoying the way I score the runs instead of having to score runs in a certain way or have to do this this innings you know so that's been a good learning curve for me but you know the the journey's been unbelievable you know test cricket's by far the pinnacle you know to play in front of the English supporters to play in ashes you know has been a dream come true for me I know it didn't go very well for us as a team, but, you know, still to have experienced that is something that, you know, that can never be taken away. There's a lot in what you just said, I think, about a theme we've we've discussed with other cricketers on the show before, that getting dropped from the test side, the way that it gets built up like you've been sacked from your job, it, like, it doesn't happen in short-form cricket, certainly not in T20 cricket with rotations and squads and all the rest. There's something about being left out of a test team which carries so much more weight as though like well once you've been omitted you're discarded you're dumped you're axed you're not good enough or whatever it is and it felt like that happened to you a little bit you know you look at that century you made I'm not sure if you know this but that first day at Perth in 2017 was the quickest on average day of test cricket since they've kept records from Crickviz. so in terms of the average speeds the, the three bowlers Cummins, Hazelwood and Stark were bowling that day and you succeeded and you made 100 there. I mean, sure, you come back to England, um, as you say, in, things don't go so well at Edgbaston against India, and you know, you're left out of the next Test match. But kind of the idea that, well, OK, he, he's had a rough trot, he, he's performed poorly against India, didn't go so well against Pakistan, it's all over. We wouldn't, I don't think, be so cutthroat if it were T20, but because it's Test cricket, there's this kind of evaluation on you as a cricketer not being suited to playing Test cricket when only, whatever it was, six months earlier, you're making 100 against Stark, Hazelwood, Cummins and Lyon in, in the some of the most challenging conditions that anyone will experience in this form of the game. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. It's... Um yeah, it's amazing. So when I got dropped from the test, it's amazing how that next six months, I literally couldn't score a run. No matter what I tried, like from a mental side, whether from a technique side, whether from a confidence side, I just couldn't. I remember going, 
I got dropped, struggled at Middlesex the last bit of the year. Like, didn't score many runs. Just, you know, I scored a couple of 50s here and there, but, like, didn't really contribute to winning a lot of games, which is what I, I like to do or try to do. I then got onto the 2020 treadmill and I went MSL, T10, back to the MSL, Bangladesh, PSL, England tour in between. You know, so I went, I was involved with five different things. And I remember going to the MSL, you know, as a marquee player. I wasn't paid a marquee fee, but I was, I went, I replaced the marquee player. So I was still sort of where I was financially down the bottom, but um, classed as a marquee player. And then suddenly the pressure that came with that, I was like, gosh, I, I really have to score runs here. I'm now seen as a marquee player. And, you know, I think from a mental side of you with what happened with the tests, you know, you know, whether you try and let it, you know, bother you or not ed smith saying that i'm not suited to play in english conditions you know stuff like that sort of felt like i was that's the end of it I'm, i've got no chance of being part of england anymore across any sort of format you know went to the msl didn't score a run i think i averaged six or seven in the tournament i was like extremely poor just could not clear my mind could not stay focused in the game and it was amazing i took i actually went to the south african uh, sorry uh, england picked me for a tour to west indies at the end and it was actually a I think it was like a maybe a 17 day tour for three 2020s you know the first day I saw Morgs he said you're not going to play any of them which was obviously you know disappointing considering you know when you look at the team you think oh there might be a chance of getting in here but you know I actually had sounds really stupid I had 17 days of lying on the beach really <laughs> which can't really complain about but it's amazing how when you're not playing you know you're training but you're the pressure's not on to perform 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 and having those 17 days on the beach actually refreshed me mentally to the extent that when I came back in 2019 to play at Middlesex, I had one of my best years ever in the sense that I'd actually got away from it. I'd almost got over all that scarring of the mental scarring of test cricket and the, the failures that I had with that. Because it is amazing. It's amazing how you suddenly, even though you've played test cricket and you've done well for a small period of time, you actually feel like a failure when you get dropped from test cricket because it's the pinnacle, because yeah. it's... You know, 2020 cricket is still sort of seen as, maybe not now, but it was sort of seen then as, you know, well, it's just, if you hit one straight up in there, oh, that's unlucky, you needed to hit it. Whereas in test cricket, if you if you fail, it's because you've, you're mentally not strong enough, because your technique's not good enough, you get picked apart left, right and centre. So you almost feel like you're a, a massive failure, which you're actually not. You just haven't scored runs for five games or seven innings or six innings. That's all it is, you know, and in the the grand scheme of things, how many times you go through a year where you don't score runs for five or six or seven innings and you don't sort of see yourself as a failure then, you know, so that, that took a bit of time to get over, you know, and as I said, I've learned from that of not wanting it too badly, not trying too hard, just being free, enjoying my cricket and what happens, happens. If it's in my control, it's in my control. So, you know, that sort of um, helped quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, that, that really does tally with, as I say, conversations we have with other cricketers that say the same thing. The idea that you're seen as a failure for being left out of a, a test team, it just doesn't add up. I remember when Mark Stoneman was left out of the, the England team and he, he told a fairly harrowing story about two hours after it happened, he had to go and get his kit and that was it. He knew his international career was over and it kind of, it, yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be a mature conversation around this and it does have this knock-on effect. So you talk about 2018 and your struggles there. By the end of 2019, you're leaving the county where you played for, well, what? what's that, by then, 11, 12, 13 seasons. And, I mean... Yeah, it might have been 14. 14. 14. No, huge part of your life, right? Your whole adult life, let's call it that. You've been at this club at Lords, famous old club at Middlesex, and you're leaving there. 
there's some reportage at the time that there's some bad blood as well. I mean, how tough was it for you to be on the way out the door at Lords at a club that you obviously loved for a long time and for the sense to be that, you know, that you weren't leaving on, on great terms? How frustrating was that for you? Yeah, it was frustrating. You know, it sort of, it, yeah, it, um, it came about, there was an ex-Middlesex player who tweeted something and suddenly everyone jumped on the back of it. You know, not that he should have much to say considering how he was at at the club but you know it was it was frustrating I needed a new challenge you know I actually spoke to to Angus and to Richie Goatley about leaving uh, at the end of 2018 you know and I decided to give it one more year you know I felt I needed a change I needed to get somewhere different you know so it wasn't like it was just 2019 and I suddenly decided I'm, I'm off now you know I'd, I'd thought about it in 2018 it's something I'd spoken to to Angus and to, to Richard Goatley about so it was you know, it wasn't like it was just a spur of the moment thing. I felt I needed to to have a new challenge. Um, you know, Middlesex have been my family. They still, you know, I'm still in touch with the CEO. You know, once a month at, at Middlesex, they're still I'm still extremely fond of the club, and you know, I absolutely love the club. They've developed me to being what I am now, where I am now, and I could never have achieved or been where I am now without Middlesex County Cricket Club. You know, they've been awesome. It's a great club. It's got some unbelievable people that are in charge and, and, and run the place, mm. um, you know, they care about you deeply. So, you know, when, when suddenly, you know, and it's the same with, you know, after that, suddenly it was, I had issues, me and Morgs had issues and me and this, it was amazing how many people sort of <laughs> made up so many things just to sort of, you know, because it's like a conspiracy theory. There has to be issues. There has to be this, there has to be this one's this. And it's like, you know, it, I found it extraordinary and I just kept getting told, don't say anything, just keep quiet about it. Just keep quiet about it. it you know, so, you know, it, it, it's, it does sort of get frustrating, but, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed the move. You know, I needed it. It's, it's refreshed me a bit. Like I said, when I went to the Caribbean, I lay on the beach for, you know, three weeks pretty much, you know, mentally refreshed, you know, the mental challenge of going to a new club, just like you go to a new tournament every or a new team in a different, in a, in a tournament every year, you it's, it's fresh. It's, it, it's a new system. It's a new way of training. It's a new way of coaching. It just freshens you up so much, you know, so it gives you more energy. It gives you more belief to keep pushing yourself to keep wanting to get better and to keep to keep uh, pushing those those boundaries which is you know I'm not saying I couldn't do that at Middlesex but I felt like I needed you know something fresh to just get that fire back in not that I'd lost the fire but just get that fire back in just to keep wanting to push for the next four five six years of my career instead of you know being in a place where I'm comfortable and you know if the England stuff hadn't worked out that you know I, I'm not the type of character that would just breeze through but the last thing I wanted was to just fall into something where I'm just in a comfort zone so I felt it was the right time for me to, to sort of push myself in a different direction. And with that uh, mid-career funk, now that's behind you, I suppose, and you, you made a double ton for Yorkshire this year in the Bob Willis Trophy, albeit five games of, of that competition. But does the dream still burn uh, strong for you to be a three-format England international? And you might want to be back in this country in 12 months from now, back in Perth, maybe not in this hotel room exactly, but back here preparing for an Ashes <laughs> Test match again. Yeah, I'd love to, you know, uh, I got told at the end of 2018 when I got dropped, just go back and score runs in county cricket. You know, I think I averaged 49 in 2019, I averaged 60 odd this year in four day cricket. So I've gone away and I've put the, the numbers on the, on the board, you know, so whether that's good enough to get another recall, I don't know. You know, England have had, you know, really good players have come through in Pope and Crawley and guys have done exceptionally well for England. So, you know, whether, whether or not is an opportunity, you know, all, all you want is it to be, um, consistent along the board you know if, if you're getting dropped and you're getting told to go away and score runs you you want the other players that are getting dropped to have to go away and score runs as well to get recalls which 
you know, sometimes that doesn't seem to sort of happen as, as such, but, you know, some players have earned the right to, to, you know, get recalls without that, which is absolutely fine. But, um, you know, all you want to do is, is, is keep your name in the hat. I'd love to play for England in, in all formats of the game, whether or not that will happen again. I don't know. You know, all I can do is score runs in every game I get for England and, and hopefully I can put pressure on them that way. Well, Dov Milan, it's been a fascinating career you've had so far. Let's hope, given you are 33 years of age and the number one T20 player in the world at the moment as far as international cricket is concerned, that you will earn yourself another opportunity to play at the at the long form of the game, as you said. Uh, thanks for being so open with us today and for joining the final word. Perfect. Thanks, Adam. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamonis and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's a final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks to Dabba Milan for making time. In a way, he didn't really need to make time because his day is about filling time at the moment in his room mm. when he's not on the exercise bike but or on the treadmill or whatever it is he's doing to stay fit while in quarantine. But nevertheless, he, he did, uh, yeah, tell us quite a lot there. Not least, uh, Jeff, a theme that I talked about in the, in the interview, but you and I have said many times, when players get left out of test teams, there is... The, the language around that uh, is far too severe and it showed with 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 David the, the extent to which that affected him in the year or two after he, he sort of left the England test set up. That had a big effect on him. I would say that he elected to fill his time with us and, and so that's worthy <laughs> of thanks because he could have elected to fill it with all kinds of other things, much as everyone who listens to the show elects to pass their time with us and we're grateful for that too. And it is interesting to hear that from a player. I, I do think about that quite a lot. It was noticeable last year at the Oval, for instance, when Travis Head got left out because they wanted an all-rounder and they'll say, oh, he was cut and he was dumped and he was axed and all the rest of it. And like, No, there are 11 spots in a national team and the configurations require that players come and go and we do have this kind of almost panic response to it that, oh my God, you've been you've been dropped, you know, it's, it's a grave insult. Well, it, it, it's not, and it's not like that with, with other sports. So it is interesting to hear players touch on that um, directly. Uh, in closing, Jeff, uh, our usual round of thank yous to Seabus Super for uh, keeping the lights on week in, week out, alongside with our amazing patrons. Patron.com forward slash the final word if you want to contribute to what we're doing over here. Buy the Golden Summers book. It's a great Christmas gift, especially if you're in the UK. Jump on the watchman.net gold TFW to get that three quid discount between now and the 17th of December, or indeed beyond that. The discount will still exist. You might just get the book after Christmas Day. The final word is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. We're a proud member of that label, as we've been calling it. Check out their work at badproducerproductions.com. Dave Collins edits us. Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards uh, have been uh, the team that have kept us going for the last couple of years, so thank you to them as well. And uh, thank you most of all to everybody who listens and to everyone on the Patreon page who makes it possible to do this show. It literally would not happen without you. Patreon.com slash the final word if you want to be part of the fun. The Daily Show starts tomorrow. Oh, Lord. All right, we're back into it again. It's all happening. There'll be The Daily Show. There'll be the weekend story time, uh, except around Christmas when we won't do it in that week the christmas new year sort of slab um but the weekly show will still be coming out with interviews and all the rest so just scroll up and down the feed to find the bits that you want to hear or strap yourself in for an intense final word ride you don't snuggle with max power you strap in and feel the juice. <laughs> yes uh, can't stop won't stop there'll be a lot of final word coming up tell your mates review and rate the show on itunes as well if you haven't had the chance to do that at some point in the past let's leave it there this has been the final word can't wait to be with you again very soon ciao bella I had to go about it, write it out and 